Hi, I'm Mario Evan, and you're listening to Talk Trot, a weekly inspired edutainment podcast discussing the things that most people are afraid to, but from a Jamaican perspective. From relationships, sex and sexuality, to the ins and outs of entrepreneurship, in this space we speak about almost anything with the intention to inspire, educate, entertain, and create a fair and balanced space where your truth shall become your power and set you free. My family, Wagwan, you're listening to Talk Truth. We have a change of the intonation on it. This is episode number 20 and it is the final episode of our very first season of Talk Truth with Mario Evan. Again, you know I am proud to have done 20 consecutive weeks of this brand new podcast that I kind of just did because I was following my universal flow and I was inspired to do it and I did it and yeah I did plan it a little bit but I also never plan all of it like to the T and then here we are 20 episodes later with actually a developing fan base and people who actually look forward to their notification every Sunday. So I decided that a break would be necessary to not only just batch episodes, but to reevaluate the past 20 episodes, to reevaluate the concept of Talk Truth, to reevaluate inspire edutainment and where it needs to go and how it can continue to inspire, educate and entertain you all in a very mature, adult, but candid way as we have been doing for the past 20 episodes, but we're just looking to make the thing better, right? So I decided to end with an episode I had been teasing for a while, which is the Ask Me episode. You guys may know I'm Mario Evan Guthrie, but my stage name is Mario Evan, which is my first and middle name. So of course, M and E formed acronym me, just for anybody who is not perceptive. Um, so Mario Evan asks me, so I have requested submissions to our email address, talktruthja at gmail.com, and people sent in questions, which I appreciate. Yay! And I also created an opportunity for people to submit questions anonymously using an app called Telenim. Telenim. So Telenim is the app we used to get questions from people who are a little more shy and who didn't really want to have their names in my email. So I'm going to get right to it. We have quite a few questions and I'm just going to jump around and mix them up. Um, some people sent multiple, some people sent one. But um, let's get to it. Someone asked me, with all the plastic surgery at a high now and men tending to love big breasts and buttocks, the person said big breasts and butt. Do you think Jamaican men are attracted to the plastic, in brackets, fakeness, and can they even tell if the woman had any work done? All right. That's an interesting question. And um, I get the joy of answering this from not only the male perspective, but from a doctor's perspective. And I will answer from the male perspective, probably only. I'm an ass man, straight up. Um... I like to see a nice ass. I like to see a big ass. I like to see a nicely shaped booty. And um, for me, I would prefer it to be natural. That's just my preference, but that's just me on a whole. I'm just a kind of naturally, natural centric, if that's a word, Afrocentric, natural centric kind of person. I like the natural beauty of a woman 
I love, um, if she cream her hair, fine, I'm okay with it. I like if it's just her hair. Um, that said, women can do whatever they want to do with their hair. You can put in a weave if you want. I'm not a fan of weave. I am a lover of natural hair and likewise a lover of natural body parts. I cannot speak for all the men of Jamaica. I get the impression that Jamaican man just love woman. And you know, most people who think of Jamaican culture and men on the street always think of the man when a woman a pass him go pst I baby love yo baby wagon. Jamaican men talk to any female that walks. Any female with a vagina and two feet, the Jamaican man will call to her. And that is a standard. Um I had a I had a so I think Jamaican man just love woman. Can all men tell if somebody had a job? Hell no. Hells no. And this is why in the world even of, of transvestites, I mean, of course a transvestite can can fool a man. Because not every single man is going to have the discernment to recognize the androgyny of of a transvestite. And not every transvestite is very androgynous. So I took it there because of course man get fooled all the time. And in terms of fakeness, I feel I can identify it, but that's because I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of things in on VH1 and Nip Talk and these things. And me just feel me no a fake bottom and me say a fake bottom. It does not shake it, no. It now move right. It out of proportion with the rest of the body. And then that may be my medical eye as well, because I am used to seeing many bodies and I'm used to proportions. And we are used to knowing a soft body versus a hard body. And a body that doesn't shake naturally. There's just some things that don't look natural. So at the end of the day, yeah, we love the body parts. Can we tell if it's fake? Not always. Jamaican man just love woman. So whether them have the work done or them don't have it done, them probably going to love them just the same. And I really see no man I want I get it and turn it away. So I hope I hope that answers that question. Um let's move on to question number two. The next question. Who's your ultimate interviewee? And I guess this would be related to the podcast. Um, you know what? I don't really want to highlight anyone. And yes, I'm a Libra, I'm a super diplomat. I have enjoyed every single interview because every interview has brought a different perspective to the conversation and also to me as an individual every single person came with a totally different energy that's my diplomatic answer my biased answer would be you know I have to lean to my father and that's just because he's my blood and not only is he my blood but my father is one of the most candid humans, candid and practical humans I have ever met in my entire life. You know, people ask me questions like if we, if me and my father talk like how oh, they talk in the podcast. And I say, yeah, it's not like every day we have to talk about have an anatomy class around the vagina. But he's a gynecologist. I grew up in a house hearing him talking on the phone about anatomy. Um, but outside of him being a gynecologist, he's a realist. He's a Virgo. He's a practical man. Him just tell it like it is. Him just talk it like it is. Him not really. But he's not disrespectful. Um, but he's frank. And um, whereas I'm a Libra and a bit more diplomatic sometimes, I'm also likewise frank. And we have that in common. So when you put the two of us in front of a microphone together, it is a 
recipe for potential disaster and we get each other we totally get each other so um my dad is definitely my friend and someone who i trust and someone who i'm comfortable speaking to about a lot of things we talk about things medically and that even allows us to talk about non-medical things in a way where you don't feel like it's a space of judgment and he kind of embodies talk truth in that regard because he in and of himself is exactly what the podcast represents a space where you can be honest and um candid and not be ashamed about it and not feel judged so i'm gonna give my ultimate interviewee to my papa uh have you ever had to fire a patient <laughs> fire in quotations and i know what this question means um most times people think that patients get to choose their doctors, which they essentially do. But sometimes doctors can choose their patients. And from a medical perspective, what that means to me is that sometimes you'll encounter a patient that may cross boundaries. And it's not that they're being disrespectful intentionally, but after practicing medicine for a number of years, as a doctor, you have to discern whether someone comes through your office door who could potentially become problematic. And this is a rule for life. And this is a rule for anyone in business. And you as a business person need to remember that you have the right to also find a way to turn that person away. Because you have the decision to act or to not act. And that power is yours. And it's the same thing as... Maybe if something comes to you that's outside of your realm, you would refer it to another doctor. It's kind of the same thing. It's not like you're just going to kick them out and say, don't ever come back. But um, for me personally, if I'm managing your healthcare and you don't have a responsible health-seeking attitude, I may at some point say to you, look here, this relationship is not working out because you have come to me for guidance. I am guiding you, but you're doing whatever the hell you want to do. So if I tell you to take your medication every day or I suggest to you that taking your antihypertensives daily will protect you from a heart attack and a stroke because the pressure there and I had a gobos pipe one day and then you are telling me, say, you take it every three days and you come off of it for two months and then your pressure there are 180 over 100 and you are comfortable with that. Then I'm not comfortable with that. So, you know, after a while, I'm going to tell you, well, if this is how you choose to manage your life, under my guidance, which means that my name is on your prescription and my name is on that drug, that little box when you take it home. If you look on the little thing that tells you how to use the medication, in the upper right corner is the name of the doctor that prescribed it. Don't think, say, when you have your stroke and you're there in the emergency room, say the emergency room doctor, them now look upon the name up in the top corner. And I don't really care what they have to say about how I practice, but we do this as doctors and we look up and be like, oh, you go to Dr. Guthrie. <laughs> Dr. Guthrie, I manage your hypertension. You're not shame me and you're not drag me. So look here. Yeah, of course, sometimes I have a fire patient. Have I had to do it? Not really. Um, I've had one or two situations that I've had to stay clear of or steer away from. But for the most part, I haven't had to fire a patient, thankfully. And I just stay within a professional realm as everybody probably would do and we handle our business as professionally as we can all right next question woo, 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 woo. what scares you most when you're about to take a major step with your creativity 
for example, launching a new single. Wow. Um, wow. Um, you know what? As a creative, we create from within. So a lot of times when we create something, it's not necessarily being created with the outcome in mind. So I personally don't create thinking, oh, wow, it's an Afrobeats rage. Now let me create an Afrobeats song. I don't like to create that way. I like for go in front of a keyboard and just put on the finger them. And then a chord progression happens and then a song comes out of the chord. I'm not thinking about top 40. This is me when I create initially. I just want to create. I'm not trying to match, match no um, charts. So with that said, I hope that whatever comes out of me is something that supporters and people who hear it will like. At the end of the day, you don't have no success if nobody's playing the song. So you could write this amazing song that you well, that you think is amazing and then you know go throw it up on Spotify and don't demo it and then people think it's a pile of crap. So maybe the most scary thing about making a creative step is whether the people who believe in you, if they'll even give a crap. Like, you know, will they like this? Will they even care? Will they, does it, does it factor into their life? Or will they play it for two seconds and move on? Will they care enough to share it? And um, it comes down to, again, creative validation, you know? Are you being validated by, by the people that you hope will like what you're delivering? And they may not like it. And that can be a little scary. Ah, uh, next question. Wow. Oh, I like this one. This one is interesting. This one says, how do you manage the naysayers and critics who question or doubt the seriousness, competence, and passion with which you pursue both careers in music and medicine? What are the emotional and other resources required and how did you develop those resources well based on your wording you assume that i've developed them so i appreciate that let's take the first part of that question how do i manage the naysayer and critics who question or doubt the seriousness competence and passion with which i pursue both careers in music and medicine i'm gonna tell you the honest truth people are a lot more coward than you think a lot of times people don't believe in you and they don't come and talk to you to your face. Well, at least not for me. So maybe I am a doping out of a frightened kind of situation. Friendly person, but I think people maybe kind of see my resting bitch face when I'm not in the mood for it. So they don't come to me with it. I can say through my journey that the percentage of times I have been told directly that what I'm doing is not appreciated is very minimal very minimal and and not at a time when it would intervene so you know it's like it's, say for instance i'm going to music school i wouldn't say that in announcing that movement somebody has come in to me to say yo you shouldn't go to music school because you can't sing it's not worth your time you're wasting life that has not been my journey and i'm grateful for that because what that means is that whenever i make a decision and i move for that decision i haven't had an intervention in the decision process so it never hampered my decision i was allowed to go into the decision go into the space grow in the space learn from the space and then maybe like years after you'll hear somebody say like just just actually this year last month a friend of mine said to me how when i was going to music school some people were saying but why would he leave medicine to go and do music? 
And, and long and short is they never thought I was good enough. But of course, that naga come to me. Like, it came to me years later. I didn't ask who said it because I don't care who said it. It's not, it's not relevant to, to my journey. I don't need to know. And, and matter of fact, I don't want to know. Because if I know who said it, I'm going to remember. So I don't, I don't care to know. It hasn't affected me at all. Um, I think also the people who doubt your seriousness are not the ones that are really, really watching. And that's the truth. Because anybody who has followed my career as a musician and as a doctor would know that I'm a serious person about my craft. So, you know, when people are ready to say stuff like, Oh, you know, release a single this long time. Oh, you know, put out an album. You know, serious about the music, you know. I don't answer them because the truth is, I've done a music degree. And prior to the music degree, I performed with my choir boys as a quintet. We used to get booked up at UTEC. I was the one taking the bookings, collecting the payments. I was in university singers for years. I sang background for years. I sang lead for years. I sang weddings. I go music school. I get my degree. I audition for The Voice. I audition for X Factor. I audition for Showtime at the Apollo. I make it to the final round. If I was here just trying to list off my accolades, I could literally attempt to shut somebody up if they want to come for me. You know what I mean? I record my album. I put it out. I do it the proper way. I credit the people. Then we do work for higher contract. We record it down a tough gang. We mix and we master it. We put it up on digital platforms. And still there are people who will say, I've never listened to your album. So, and those are the people who will come to you and say stuff like, yo, you know, serious about the music. And then I could look at them and say, you know, I have an album. Them going to never know that. You have an album. And then I say, you know, what song is your favorite song on the album? Boy, you know, I never, never hear it yet, you know. Oh, you can't find that. I mean, how you can find that? You have Google? These people don't care about you. So, people who doubt your seriousness are just not watching and they don't realize how much work you've put in, nor do they respect the space that goes between creative ventures and that sometimes it can take months, sometimes it can take years before somebody can spawn another creative project. And they also don't respect the time that needs to go into calming your mind. Life happens. You probably get married. You probably become a parent. You probably were depressed. You probably went through a breakup. I don't know. Things happen. And for that reason, things kind of go on pause. So those same people don't respect your competence. They've never been watching anyway. So they don't appreciate anything. And as for medicine, though I didn't specialize, I went from a space of working in the hospital setting and kind of in a supervised space to stepping out on my own and being a GP and being a GP in an unsupervised space, meaning that I never had a senior GP to to bounce things off of. You know, I've only had my dad in the office to ask him questions. And outside of him, him function as my little consultant when I need to bounce a question. Other than that, I have relied on my clinical judgment to build strength and over the years of being a GP I have just become so much more confident like being a GP has taught me so much about bedside manner patient interaction and I have treated so many conditions that I never had to manage alone and it was scary every single one was scary and I just did my research and you know I brushed up on what I needed to brush up on and I ensured that the patients underneath my care were safe and I kept open communication and ensure that they were good. So you know what? At the end of the day, you have to 
um, not look at the naysayers and believe in your own seriousness, competence and passion and ignore them, you know. So, yeah, don't pay them no mind. Um, my emotional and other resources that I've developed um, for this, for, to protect myself. I have a wonderful support system. So, friends and family, uh, they support me implicitly and explicitly. I have a lot of people on Team Mario who encourage me. People who are paying attention, people who have listened to the album, people who have followed the journey, like the person who sent this question in, people who have seen growth, people who have heard growth and tell you about the growth. And for me, that's probably the greatest safety net that, you know, I have all of this family that believes in me and that keeps giving me validation to the point where I don't really even need the validation that much anymore because I know that people are out there listening and that people are out there supporting. So friends, um, family, and again, what I just said, I think you come to a point where you have validated yourself enough that you don't need to really focus on what anybody else is saying. And I mean, that comes from music school, all the auditions, all the things that you've created. You kind of cross over this hump. There's this line that you kind of cross over where you just don't doubt yourself as much. Um, I still get a little nervous about creating because I kind of don't know what, what's going to come out of me next and I don't know what's next. But that's a, like a little creative anxiety. But I don't doubt that I'm talented. And I don't doubt that I'm passionate and I don't doubt that I'm competent and I don't doubt that I'm serious. Um, and I think I'll just leave it there. I don't know if I have any other formal resources. I would just say my network, my friends, my family are my support. And when I'm a little low, I fall on them and they bring me back up. So, you know, thank you for that question. That's a cool, that's a cool question. Um... Let's move on. Some of these are deep. Um, so it doesn't look like you grew up with sisters. What was it like for your mother in a household of men? Meaning, how did she navigate nurturing all of you, yet maintaining her self-identity and position as a strong, grounded woman? Well, you know about my mother. Again, an assumption but I really don't think it's wrong. Hearing her perspective from her own mouth on the program would be nice. Oh, well, I can't answer that question. She would have an answer and she's not a public person. So <laughs> unfortunately, she will not be on Talk Truth with Mario Evan. So I don't know how you will know the answer to that question, but I cannot answer it and I will not attempt to answer it. Um, I do agree she's a strong and grounded woman and maybe we've nurtured her as well. So it's not so much about her nurturing all of us, but we've mutually nurtured each other. Um, as for the rest, maybe one day you book her out a road, you can ask her, I'll introduce you. Uh, but yeah, that's that's on that one. Hoppity, uh, skippity, jumpity. Woo, what is your favorite sexual position and what do you enjoy sexually? Whoop, 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 whoop. On a bowling, this one was anonymous, of course. Well, in summary, I'm going to use Vibes Cartel to help me with this one. 
Action to your favorite position. Action to your favorite position. Action to your favorite position. And we will leave it right there. Um, Oprah, my mother, always said, keep your private life private. So I'm not going to tell you what I enjoy sexually. Um, only if I have sex with you, you know that. So, yeah, we move on from that one. Uh, interesting one. How do you negotiate to be your true self with the demands of the world for you to confirm to conform, I'm sorry, or be somebody else. Example, by being a doctor, lawyer, teacher, and not an artist, farmer, photographer. All right, allow me to rephrase your question a little, but um, it's pretty clear. Um, how do you be your authentic self when society has a framework for you to be somebody else? Uh, and that's versus choosing your academic side, for example, versus being your authentic creative side. I'm not going to lie. It's difficult. It's difficult. Uh, I, again, have been blessed to grow up in a space where the myth of my parents forcing me to do medicine has to be dispelled. It's not true. Never happened. And I don't feel I've ever confused anyone to believe it. And anyone who, who has said it is projecting what they think happened. My parents never forced me to do medicine ever. My father is a doctor. I did sciences and business up to fifth form. A teacher suggested I do sciences in sixth form. I did the Jamaican Cultural Streamlined University, Natsai, and transferred to medicine because I thought it was stable and I had the example of a doctor in the family. That's simple. Why did I do it? Felt right to do it at that time. Totally universal flow. When I was in the construct of society and what they thought was right, Medicine was the end all and beat, and I was surrounded by everybody trying to get into medicine and had a doctor as an example. It seemed like the best progression for me at the time. And that's all I can that's all I can say about that. Uh, and how that ties into your question is if you are passionate enough and love whatever that other thing is enough, you will find a way to do it. And that's where music school happened for me. And every time you step closer and closer to that dream and to that gold, I'm going to steal my alchemist line. The universe will conspire to assist you in getting closer to it. And you also will develop a confidence that will allow you to pretty much ignore everything else that's going on. Will you ignore it totally? No, because if you're in a space where it's being jammed into your head, especially by family members who are close by. So if you have to come home to a house of parents, uncles, grandparents, cousins, people who are telling you not to follow your dream, then it's going to make it much more difficult to be authentic to yourself. Um, and personal authenticity comes with people say bravery, but I guess a lot of bravery. You have to step out. You have to step out. You have to start. Um, other things will help you. Being financially independent will help. Living on your own will be will help. Um, kind of really cutting off the people that are holding you back. And when I say cutting them off, I don't mean never speaking to them, but I mean stepping away from their space and 
being brave enough to do what you love and have them follow suit whether they choose to follow suit or not and you just have to be open to um to that happening um other ways i negotiate this initially i used to be very defensive and i used to try to defend why entertainment was stable why entertainment was lucrative but I realized I was speaking to people who didn't understand anything about the entertainment industry. So you have to choose your battles. Um, I knew a lot of the revenue streams before even going to music school. But after going to music school, my eyes opened to really the expanse of the music industry and the entertainment industry as a whole. And the more things I became involved with was the more that I saw income streams. So nobody can really talk to me about whether entertainment is lucrative. So the people stuck in the old days who kind of go like, oh God, I, I'm glad you're still doing medicine. I sometimes make easily more music in money, money in entertainment than medicine. So there's no disputing that it's lucrative. The dispute really is whether you can make it happen for yourself and if you can be consistent enough and stick to it enough to to eventually crack through a door that allows you to make money um but all i would say is don't stop um keep trying to attain more of your creative side if that's what you desire if you want to do both do both if you don't feel like creativity is the way to go then do the other thing but don't have any regrets because nobody wants that uh next question what inspires your changing hairstyles and are you ever afraid of what people would think um what inspires my hairstyles is whatever the hell i feel like doing in the moment um i was never brave enough to do that when i was younger i had regular haircuts all the way up until music school i kind of embraced mario evan and i was in a space where i wasn't practicing a lot of medicine and i was a student so i was it was easy for me to grow my hair out in a creative environment and nobody cared. Your lecturers don't care. It's music school. Everybody's is like rock band. Nobody cares. So you're allowed to express yourself in, in a creative ways and it was fine. So I think once I developed that confidence to grow the fro, then I worked to the fro for many years. And then eventually I got tired of the fro and then I shaved off the sides and the back. What started to happen was I started to change my hairstyles around birthdays. So that was like an interesting um, trend that I developed. So there was the high top fade, which came because for some reason, they didn't want to bring it back. People were having it. And I was like, you know what? I used to have one of these back in the day. Let me draw for this again. And that was a very interesting hairstyle for me because it was one weird to maintain. I had to get regular haircuts. I had to pick it out. So it wasn't curly and it was nice it was just my big old fro but shaped enough in a in a high top fade it, it brought me the energy of the 90s it was exciting and um when i dyed it blonde i think that was probably my most exciting hairstyle and for me i enjoy the changes because i love the dynamic nature of changing how you look and changing how you look on the outside can sometimes make you feel different on the inside even though you're the same person and I, I love that. So for me, I don't do it to seek attention. I just do it because somewhere in my gut, I feel like, let's switch it up. Like, life is too short to be to, to have one hairstyle for your whole life. Like, why the hell would I have one hairstyle for my whole life? Not mine. 
maybe somebody else but not mine um what i would say was very interesting though is how my hairstyles brought out the insecurities of other people how my hairstyles and my security with them funnily enough was fine but their insecurities were projected so when i had cane rows you'd find some people didn't like the idea of a doctor with cane rows and it was really that they thought cane rows was in a city was ghetto it never looked appropriate for a professional to have that even if it was neatly done and that stemmed from maybe how they were raised and things their parents taught them but it wasn't a part of my psychological construct or the blonde hair was just too bold or mentioned to have blonde hair or it was that was actually the, that's the most unique thing about changing your hairstyle especially in a conservative quote-unquote conservative space how much it projects the insecurities of others <laughs> so many things and comments come from the people who are standing on the outside looking in and then also how it challenges them for a lot of people i felt like they were probably more prude and then after they sit down with the hairstyle for a while and process it then all of a sudden they're like but you know what this kind of look good you know maybe you should wear it to work all of a sudden it empowers them to be somewhat rebellious or like um go against the structure that was interesting and has been interesting because you you're challenging you're literally challenging people what people know as normal and then all of a sudden you present something to them that they didn't expect in a space that they didn't expect it so you're a doctor and you have blonde hair or you're a doctor and you have blonde highlights and then they, they have to now recalibrate it's kind of exciting actually again i don't do it for the shock value but it's funny to observe I wouldn't say I was afraid of what people thought as much as I was afraid of how it would affect my my coin, affect me securing the bag. So what I did, so I somewhat self-sabotaged. So like when I was coming back to work from the blonde hair, I literally cut it off. I didn't want to dye it, but I cut the volume of it off. So it became a shorter blonde cut. The side started to, of course, grow back into the natural color. But I assumed that corporate wouldn't allow me to work with the hairstyle. And I also assumed that clients would be offended by the by the hair. And I didn't want to take the risk of going to work and then HR speaking to me. So I literally self-destructed. And I was the one that cut the hair because I thought other people would have a problem with it. So that lesson is that you should never do that. And if you are truly, truly bold enough, where to work and see what will happen because people really ended up liking the blonde hair my mother didn't love it but i mean parents won't love stuff like that people in the streets loved it people who love me and respect me as an artist loved it people who appreciated it as a bold and creative move loved it um conservatives didn't like it and i don't know maybe the patients would have loved it maybe i would have started taking their histories and they would have been like cool here and then life would move on which is usually what happens actually so um maybe that was my little concern that maybe it would affect the coin and we know we don't mess with securing the bag so i probably confirmed it to an unspoken corporate rule and i dampened it down i toned it down because i decided to and not because anybody told me to so in the future we'll see if that happens again that is me toning it down um when are you going to drop the next album wow that's a catch 22 question i don't know um 
really all I'm trying to do right now is working on work on becoming I'm working on becoming creative again. And really what has happened is a lot of life has sat in between the first album and me creating a new album. So right now, to my lovely supporters, I just want to create a single and a visual or three singles and three visuals. And we'll see if it becomes an EP or an album, but an album or two or three or four or more are to come in my future. That's the plan. As to when, I would just say expect new music in 2020, maybe before, but I will put that pressure on myself to say expect some new Mario Evan material in 2020. Alright? Look out for it! Alrighty. We are doing well. What are the attributes you would look for in a soulmate? What qualities must they possess? Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Alright, I'm going to define an attribute. An attribute is a quality or feature regarded as a characteristic or inherent part of someone or something. Ah, uh, I could list out a bag of things, but in essence, I would want to be attracted to her. I would want her to love me for me. I'd want her to be fun and funny and calm and supportive. Um, I'm going to read something I wrote to a friend funny because this conversation came up. I wrote that I want to meet someone who I'm attracted to, but most importantly, who loves me for me is fun, funny, calm, supportive, who can be my ride or die friend. And we can be intimate, travel, take each other, take care of each other and our families. Someone who won't make me feel inadequate or micromanage me for the things I haven't done in life or have yet to do but actually helps me to get there. And all of that said, we're two individually whole people who need to spend time alone and watch our own TV shows, have our independent bank accounts, and don't have to be together all the damn time, but love each other to pieces. There's my paragraph. I hope that that summarizes that. But um, to list a few qualities, I'd say honesty, Respect, fun, into healthy lifestyle, because I'm big on that. We need to take care of ourselves. Has an appreciation for the arts, because if you don't love music and dance and these things, and you're not, you're not going to get my life. So that not going to work. Um, not caught up in facades or stratifications. I really hate um, stereotypes, and I hate social stratification. I hate the idea of uptown, downtown, rich, poor, town, country, all of it, I it it isn't it's not a space I live in. I try to say I live in a good people, bad people space. It's either you're a good person or a bad person. Um, nobody may really even be bad, but you know what I mean. You know, you have people who have good energy, good 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 vibes, and you have people who, at a certain point in their life, they're not really channeling good energy. They're in a negative space. So that's what my whole world is divided into: good and bad, kind of like the scale. But I really hate high school stereotypes. See, they go campion, say you stay, so you come from up to you stay, so you're brown skin, say you stay, so you're dark skin, say you stay, so. I don't get into those kind of stratifications because I find that the logic that is tied behind them is usually very flawed. 
And because it's flawed, I, I can't really get behind it. You know, because you have, for instance, a campionite who come from a ghetto community. Or you have a campionite who is dark-skinned. And you have a campionite who take bus. So if you have a sweeping stereotype like campionites get picked up and campionites don't know Jamaica and campionites can't take the bus and campionites don't speak Patois you have these kind of sweeping generalizations about any stratification person. I find that logic is flawed and um, I don't like to get into discussions about it because it can get very heated. I either stay very quiet <laughs> or I get very upset. So um, and I'm speaking from my personal experience just because of how I was raised and what my root is like, I don't really attribute a lot of my qualities to some of the stereotypes that people create. Uh, I want somebody who's ambitious and who wants to grow with me and not make me into what they desire. So that's that's a big thing for me because when you are in the public eye and people have decided what they want you to be for them, it's very hard to get them to see you <laughs> because they are seeing a movie in their head of what you are or what they want it to be. But because of that movie that's playing, they're not really seeing the, the B-roll. <laughs> but all the information is in the B-roll. All the information is in the B-roll. And my fear is that when they come into my movie, they're going to walk out at intermission. So for me, I am very patient in entering all relationships because people are selfish and people are fickle. <laughs> and in this generation of modern, modern times, people want what they want and they want it fast. And I'm not here trying to provide it for you. So I want to know, say, you're going to stick around. I want to say we're friends. I want to say ride or die. I want to say the foundation stable. And once I can be certain that the foundation is stable, then all of the joys of the world will follow that. Then it will be an amusement park. It will be tons of fun. I promise you. Alrighty. Let's keep it moving. We're almost done, guys. There are a few more. This was an interesting episode. There's so much... So many things people want to know, but I ask for it, right? Ask me. All right. Uh, how deeply does the question, what's next, irk you as a creative? And what are some of your experiences and processing of those experiences with creativity blocks? Do you think society is sensitive enough towards the creative processes of artists to include creative blocks? And what can be done to cultivate that? Wow, enough question that. Uh... The what's next question irks me when I don't know what's next. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like you're asking me, when you can write a song? And I'm like, I'm not even writing. So it's like you're asking me about something I don't know about. That can be a little bit annoying. But um, again, I understand the intention behind the question. A lot of times people are just waiting and eager and excited. So it comes from a place of support. But for me, the creative, it can make you feel a little bit pressured to create and i don't want to create under pressure um some of my experiences with creativity blocks uh i'm having one right now because i am unable to schedule time to create and it's not because i don't have the time to create 
I can find the time because I find time for so many other things. But I think when you are consumed by a lot of other things, it's sometimes difficult to quiet the mind, especially if you haven't been doing it for a while. Whereas some people, I think, have developed such a stable creative habit that um, they don't have to think about starting to write a song. But for me to turn on the keyboard and turn on the speakers attached to the keyboard and set up the workstation and the microphone, for some reason that hump of turning on all the equipment is a difficult one. But once it's on, the creativity flows. But just to, to, to go over that first hurdle, for some reason, here's a block. Society is definitely not sensitive to the creative process and the blocks. And that's reflected by how much people pressure you to do the things they want you to do. Instead of just kind of just being like, yo, work with the flow. It will happen when it happens. No, they're on your back and they want what they want soon. Poor Rihanna, she needs to release her album. Don't. Um, what can be done to cultivate the support, the sensitivity? I think people just need to understand that different artists have different creative processes. And um, you're not the one creating it. So just let the person go through the process. Like if they haven't released an album in 10 years, then that's none of your business. And if you can ask them, ask them gently. Don't pressure them into creating. They might be dealing with a whole lot of other stuff that you're not ready to help them with or you don't even know. So yeah i would say just respect the human you know we're almost there guys how would you describe your transition or growth or evolution rather from the little boy at mona prep to dr mario evan guthrie and how has it impacted your emotional self and personal growth well the little boy at mona prep was very friendly but he was shy and he was afraid. He was terrified and he wasn't strong. He was picked on. He was bullied. He was... He probably thought he was weak. He didn't quite appreciate the beauty in the strengths that he possessed. And those strengths would be in being friendly, in being kind and thoughtful to people. and Which made him pretty much... An accessible person. Kind of like a humanitarian, you know? And um, that boy grew into a stronger young man, into a strong man, into a strong adult man. And um, with the careers which don't define the man and the things that have come with the careers, just a lot of growth has happened, you know? A lot of non-constructive criticism, constructive criticism, acceptance, rejection, you know, everything that you can think of ends up being thrown at you and you have to find a way to deal with it. All the things that people say that come back around to you, good or bad, you have to develop a thick skin and kind of grow around it and you have no choice. So I would say it has impacted my emotional self tremendously and has caused me to grow even more rapidly as a person i feel like if i hadn't stepped into mario evans slash dr guthrie and and what those personas bring to them then i would have grown at a much slower rate and i feel like maybe where i am now mentally wouldn't happen until another 20 years from now but um what i've evolved into in my estimation is 
has been even surprising for me and I'm like if I'm here now it really makes me wonder you know how much more there is to go <laughs> you know but you know we're always learning but I'm, I'm happy with where I am as a human and you know the journey continues so you know props to life and props to growth and props to developing thick skin <laughs> all right last question guys and then we're out of here we are wow at 46 minutes right now um minus intro outro and the last question is i feel like your family has a nice little dynamic i don't know them personally but i don't get the sense of toxic masculinity meaning the overexertion of societal ideas of masculinity yo you're deep you know having been a part of the makeup Okay, I feel like love existed in very expressed ways and this is evident in the way you talk to and with each other on the respective Talk Truth episodes. A lot of men have never experienced that and women too and would appreciate hearing about the experience. So my question is, what was it like growing up with a father and a brother who didn't exist with the fear of love between men and how has that transcended as you and your brother got older? Wow, that's deep. That's a deep, deep, deep question. So, and let me tell you something about life. Um, things don't get labeled until people have lack or misunderstanding or don't understand it completely. So, <laughs> it's just like how people think it's brave of me to go to music school after medicine. I'm not a, I'm not committing a brave act. I'm a creative and I want to learn more about music. So I mean, I go to music school. I'm just living. For them, it's bravery. For me, I'm just doing the next thing that's logical to me. Where I'm going with this is, I didn't know what toxic masculinity was when I was a child growing up. Um, so I couldn't step outside of that and think that this kind of love between men, father to son, brother to brother, was something new unusual unique um but at this stage in life looking back i would agree that it was not a household of toxic masculinity i will agree with that um matter of fact most lessons in my house were taught passively i never had a conversation with my parents about the birds and the bees and nor was I forced to function as a man in a forced way. I wasn't told to act a certain way. I wasn't I wasn't told to do anything. I wasn't told to go have sex with enough gal. I wasn't told that I have to toughen up. Matter of fact, most of that toxic masculinity existed in spaces outside of the home. And um, retrospectively, I'm very grateful for it because... I don't really know if my parents consciously decided to parent by example. But I I hope I can do the same because it is that very difficult parenting style. Because we're in an era where parents feel that they must micromanage and tell kids what to do. And the very nature of telling someone what to do underestimates their intelligence. <laughs> And a lot of times we don't realize that. And that's probably why I grew up as such a defensive child when people gave me unsolicited advice because 
in my house, I never had to deal with unsolicited advice. I was expected to perform at a certain level. But nobody really told us what to do. Nobody told you what job to do. Nobody told you how to act. Nobody kind of forced you to be. They just allowed you to kind of be. <laughs> Don't get me wrong and we did have rules. We had rules. We had rules. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. And there were boundaries. And we didn't cross them either. So my house wasn't a free for all. Parent a parent and picnic a picnic. But I really cannot think of being given a construct for masculinity. I grew up in a house with a father and a brother and a mother. I have two males around me and one female in a house. And I see how men behave who are bigger than me in my house and in my family. And that make you understand how man for go on. Man must hold door for a woman. Man must say, and your mother. Let's, let's not talk about that. Your, your mother, mothers actually, I think more than anything, teach men how to be masculine. You know what I mean? Having the example of a father is one thing. But a lot of the positive masculine traits that I have were taught to me by my mother. My mother showed me how a woman should be treated. My mother showed me how a man must behave in society and things that men must do. And again, it wasn't by force. It was by, by lead. So it was amazing growing up in a household with a father and brother who I guess had no fear of, of love between each other. Um, I wouldn't say we were overtly physically affectionate. Uh, I wasn't really one to hug the men in my family per se, but I don't feel like it has affected me in any way. Um, but um, we definitely have mad love for each other. We love each other a whole lot. And in terms of my brother and I, we are definitely comfortable. Um, brothers are interesting. I think if a brother that, that you get along with is not a big problem. My brother is four and a half years older than me. And when I was born, he wanted a sibling. And I think for parents, <laughs> when they have a second child... I think they were hoping it would have been a girl. They didn't get a girl. They got a second boy. And that was a wrap. And when you're four and a half years older, for me, I have somebody to look up to and follow around like a tail. For them, they have someone to kind of mold. That's the older brother. So the kind of bond that was formed is one of those kind of strong bonds, especially when it's just the two of you. You don't have a third sibling to kind of off offset that balance is just you and your brother and we just do everything together so um our relationship and our love and how we interact has been nurtured from i was born i don't know any other way um and, and we get along well you know we're close we understand each other and we come from the same background so we that commonality is just Anybody with a sibling will understand what I mean. That commonality is just unique. And um, yeah, I am grateful for the the examples of men that I have in my life. Really, really, really wonderful uh, men. And um, it has definitely helped to mold me into the man that I am. Truly grateful. Guys, wow. It is a long episode, but guess what? It's the final one before this show goes into another mode. So, uh... No apologies for it being long. Either you're going to listen to it or you ain't. 
But thank you for listening to it. Thank you for supporting. We started on May 12th when I released the anniversary of my album release. And it would have been four years this year. And I decided to release something else in its space. Kind of like to create a little universal energy. And a podcast was released four years after the album was released on the same day, May 12th. May 12th. And here we are 20 episodes later. And... I thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Um, What I want you to do for me while we're on the break is to share. The beauty of podcasts is that they stay up and they stay live. And which means that the podcast can still grow even when the episodes are not coming out weekly. So I am begging you. I am begging you. I am begging you to share this podcast with someone who has never heard it before. Or someone who you think can be inspired by an episode that inspired you. And um, that's all I really ask of you to do. And keep living your truth. Talk truth. And um, again, thank you. Uh, That's all I can say. I appreciate you guys so much. And I will let you know when I'm coming back <laughs> with the next set of episodes. And um, we're going to try come good. We're going to come good. All right. So thank you guys for being a part of this process. Thank you for submitting your questions via email and anonymously. And I hope I answer them to the best of my ability. You just listened to episode number 20 of Talk Truth, a place where your truth shall become your power and set you free. This is the last episode of our season one and we'll be back with more niceness in the next season. And I'm going to keep you posted when that come out. Oh, follow us on Twitter at TalkTruthJA. Follow me on Instagram at MarioEvan. And check out all episodes at our website, which is either MarioEvan.com slash talk-truth, or you can just go to TalkTruthJA.com. And if you want to shoot us an email, shoot us an email at TalkTruthJA at gmail.com. Okay, Megano. Later. Bye.